Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are in this country, around the world, on Mars, maybe, escaping from the madness of it all. Anyway, thank you. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Very few notices this week uh, in terms of the Assembly. If it's all right with all of you after just a couple of very brief notices, I'll pose a question, which is why are the Conservatives, when on the verge of power from opposition, 79, 2010, so much more ambitious in their radicalism from the right than their equivalents in the Labour Party when they're on the verge of power. And that's obviously in the context of we've now had the announcement that Labour are scrapping their £28 billion green recovery plan. We reflected last week uh, in our discussion and with some of my reflections on the challenges of navigating the mad pre-election tax and spend debate in the context of expecting the uh, 28 billion to be scrapped. It now has been. So once again, we're going to delve deep, if that's all right, with all of you by contrasting the Tory approach to elections when they're ahead in the polls in opposition and Labour and uh, pose the question, why? And is it always right that Labour can only win by almost sort of hugging the contours of the Conservative argument and just moving a little away from them. Anyway, that's what I'll I'll be doing. We'll then return to some of the brilliant points you have made and questions in our never-ending discussion here uh, on the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. And that's notice number one. If you want to join in our never-ending debate, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. So I put that right at the beginning. So if you miss it because you're out running or building a house or walking up Arthur's Seat or something in Edinburgh or by a lake somewhere beautiful, as I know some of you are, it's right at the beginning, the email, so you can join in. And on that very front, uh, do subscribe and tell friends and relatives to subscribe because we're, we're delving deep in this politics 
podcast. And yeah, if you subscribe, you'll get it automatically in wherever you get your podcasts on uh, first thing on a Tuesday. Uh, if you subscribe to Patreon, you get it on late Monday afternoon. And on that front, there will be a new bonus podcast coming to Patreon subscribers this week, continuing our series Preparing for Power comparing 97 very precisely with some interviews I did with all the players in that New Labour era leading up to the 97 election and comparing it with now. So it becomes even more pertinent in the light of recent events. So if you could subscribe, it's great, but do subscribe and tell others to subscribe and then everything kind of arrives as if by magic. If you join Patreon, you get it ad-free as well. Okay, that's it for notices. So we've now had it officially confirmed. It was a very odd phraseology, which I think reflects Keir Starmer's kind of doubts about it all. The policy of the £28 billion green recovery plan has been stood down. It raised stood down, kind of like, you know, animals are put down. It's this sort of, it was a curious phrase. And it raises so many questions. So we kind of explored some of them in our time together. And many, I've had so many emails about it, I can't tell you, from members of the cooperative uh, in recent times. It kind of, there's a, there's a fascinating question, for example, from Paul Johnson, not known to be a kind of raving Marxist uh, from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, who says actually £28 billion is not a huge sum of money. Um, but there is a question, which is given that they're not proposing to spend virtually anything on the NHS and education, why was it this one? And in a way, it's, it's an interesting question. Because I remember I've had a conversation with Keir Starmer about this in my time, in his time. <laughs> his time is slightly more in demand, I suspect. In politics, to be convincing, you've got to always answer the why question. And it, it, it is interesting that, um, I mean, plenty of answers about the urgency of the uh, climate crisis, that you can address it. But it did make me think, oh, yeah, it's not that huge a sum in the great scheme of things. But given this, you know, this non-dom tax is doing all the rest of the heavy lifting in terms of spending. But here was one spending pledge. Why that one is an interesting one. When it was announced, the $28 billion at the party conference by Rachel Reeves a few years ago, was there enough internal scrutinising of the policy? Given in the same speech, Rachel Reeves outlined her fiscal rules. Did she, Keir Starmer, st people in Starmer's office and beyond, scrutinise the pledge? What would happen if interest rates went up? Would it be compatible with the fiscal rule? If not, what is the priority? Are we arguing from a Keynesian point of view that to borrow, to invest, generates growth that generates income? Or are we saying our priority is a sort of George Osborne-esque balance the books under all circumstances, cut spending if necessary? Uh, what is the essence of our argument? Did these discussions take place at the point of the announcement and since? 
And the evidence suggests not. And by the way, that why question uh, needs to be addressed more robustly on other fronts. So Rachel Reeves, who is a good interviewee, she's more relaxed than Gordon Brown, but as authoritative, although, you know, the sort of way this has been handled raises questions about the operation in all the respective offices of those involved. So she often stresses the centrality of the fiscal rules. But why? Why? And I think what they need to say on that front is, it is because we are ambitious for change that we seek economic stability. It is not that we are being cautious uh, in our ambition. But if you look at any British government since 1945, they have not been able to be ambitious reformers when they have uh, faced economic crises. And that's true of the John Major government on the right in 1992. The Wilson government never recovered from devaluation in 67. It didn't recover its energetic verve in quite the way it had before. And that's a kind of valid argument, but you have to put it and explain why. But even when you've addressed the why question, you do then have to sound ambitious. I keep on reading briefings from people in Keir Starmer's office that voters don't want big change. Well, you know, maybe they don't. Maybe there is a sort of almost ideological Blairite adherence to uh, kind of a status quo in which you then, within it, implement incremental reforms. Although Blair himself is always keen to stress the kind of uh, radical ambition of his reforms as, as arising from this vast Tony Blair Institute. By the way, I think it's an interesting question and part of the explanation for all of this, which is whether any Labour leader will be entirely free to confidently pursue his or her agenda while Tony Blair is politically active. I don't blame Tony Blair at all for doing what he's done. I kind of admire the fact that he is so, or feels so engaged with politics at, at a very kind of detailed, granular level, and clearly wants to have massive influence over Starmer. But it kind of does raise a question. So like, if you're a I don't know, a millimetre to the left of Tony Blair as a Labour leader, you're in trouble, as Ed Miliband and then Jeremy Corbyn found out, kind of Tony Blair very involved in the Corbyn era of briefings about a new political party and so on. And then if you kind of embrace the agenda, you're sort of caught in a different way, I think. And so, yeah, sorry, that's kind of in parenthesis, but it is relevant, I think, to this broader question which I'm posing uh, in the context of the much rehearsed issues around this almighty U-turn. And that is compare and contrast with the Tories on the verge of power. So there's a myth around 1979 and Thatcher, which is she was actually very cautious going into that election. Well, compared to what she did subsequently, Everything's relative, and there is something in that. But more broadly, there was supreme ideological self-confidence underpinning 
a set of policies that were put forward in 79. In essence, what Thatcher did was to, with complete unqualified confidence, argue that the state trapped people and that she was going to free them from the shackles of the state. And she, uh, that word freedom became associated with the Tory party and the right and has never been seized back, even though Clem Attlee, actually, of all people, in 1945 seized freedom for the left. And it could have been done now. It hasn't been, although some of the more uh, thoughtful shadow cabinet members like Bridget Phillipson has tried to do so. And underpinning it was a complete forensic analysis of what had gone wrong with corporatist statism in the 70s. It wasn't just saying the Labour government was incompetent, which is what New Labour did with the Tories in 97 and Kit Starmer is doing largely now. There was an ideological underpinning of what had gone wrong and therefore what needed to happen for it to be put right. And within that manifesto, there were a series of quite radical reforms. There was the beginning of a recalibration between the state and the private sector, selling off of council homes being one with no proposition to build new affordable rented housing. Trade union reforms were in there, and above all, monetarism, which had been shaped and framed from the fall of Heath onwards, uh, not just by Thatcher, but by Keith Joseph and think tanks and so on. And Geoffrey Howe, her shadow chancellor, was as committed to it as Thatcher. And so this was all in place by 79, in the build-up to 79. So they had an ideological underpinning. They had a language to sort of accompany it, you know, very populist, accessible language. My father in his grocer's shop in Grantham never spent more than he earned, and a country can't spend more than it earns. It's economic illiteracy, but very accessible economic illiteracy. And so it was a pitch confidently made from the right. Not everything she subsequently went on to believe was in that 79 manifesto, but a lot of it was. And then you fast forward to 2010, which is a very interesting example. See, David Cameron, uh, he used the language of modernization and all that kind of thing uh, and being compassionate and caring about people in the third world and so on. But it actually was a very self-confident rebooting of Thatcherism. Indeed, Oliver Letwin, uh, who was very close to Cameron, described it to me as that in the build-up to the 2010 election. And it was framed around an argument about the big society. And it was building on Thatcher's famous speech, where she said there was no such thing as society. What she meant by that is that she didn't see the state as the agency. Uh, she talked about charities and others delivering. And that's precisely the argument that Cameron developed in the build-up to 2010. Uh, they went into that election arguing for real-term spending cuts and a smaller state. And the, he had people like Steve Hilton with him, who was a right-wing libertarian who now uh, sings uh, melodious chants for Donald Trump on Fox News in the United States. And because he wore shorts and smoked cigarettes and was a nice guy to talk to, a lot of the media said, oh, yeah, he's a modernizing centrist. You know, no, he was on the right. 
and it was a very confident pitch to the right. And what is more, when they didn't win an overall majority in 2010, they still had the confidence to implement that manifesto, manipulating Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander, the two key Lib Dems in that coalition, uh, with a great skill. Cameron and Osborne were great managers of people. And so in 2010, they didn't win an overall majority, went in, made real-term spending cuts, Reform public services in a way that I think would have taken aback Margaret Thatcher in its in its seal. Remember, their plans for the NHS were publicly known, in fairness to Andrew Lansley, the shadow health secretary and then health secretary. He had published papers on what he was planning to do with the NHS. It was a kind of dismantling and taking out of the realm of the NHS direct government responsibility. It was a sweeping reform from the right. And the pet white paper was kind of, they had to revise it a bit because the Lib Dems, Clegg couldn't get it through the Lib Dems, although he initially backed it. This was self-confident, radical policies from the right. And now fast forward to now, and we have a Labour Party 20 points ahead in the polls, ditching one of its most distinctive measures, uh, the £28 billion Green Recovery Plan. It was its argument partly for generating economic growth, which raises the question, you know, in terms of economic growth, I remember discussing this with Bridget Phillips and when I interviewed her for the podcast, with uh, her plans about um, childcare. And she had very ambitious plans that have been pared down because of the Rachel Reeves' fiscal rule discipline. But she had noted Bridget Phillipson in Australia when the Australian Labour Party put this forward, an extensive childcare programme, that it kind of worked on many different levels. It was obviously inherently attractive to uh, parents. But you could also frame the argument that it uh, meant that more people could go out to work, which would generate wealth and more tax revenue and so on. So, so it raises the question, what comes first? Economic growth that then allows you to be more expansive or the expansiveness that triggers the economic growth? And I just don't think they fully resolved that question. The answer as to why, you know, in, in 97 too, I mean, Tony Blair's message in effect was, our radicalism is our caution compared with old Labour who would propose X, Y, and Z and all the rest of it. Why it is the case. And I think it's partly navigating through a right-wing media, certainly in 97, where the newspapers were more powerful, but they're still very influential now. And it's interesting, you know, people briefing on behalf of Starmer will hang out with all the kind of lobby correspondents and even the non-Tory ones work on the assumption that public spending is a bad thing. So there's that. There's the fact that Labour lose elections most of the time, which leads to an inherent lack of confidence and certainly ideological confidence. And it is a view, certainly of England and maybe the whole of the UK, that it's a kind of right of centre country. 
And by the way, it's not a view that I, I share. And Tony Blair once told me, I had a really interesting conversation once. Tony Blair was prime minister heading towards the 2005 election. And we had a private conversation uh, where he said that the conservatives could pitch uh, to the right uh, and govern to the right. The Labour Party could never pitch and govern to the left because of the nature of the country. Um, anyway, it's a whole podcast to address that different question. Is the UK or England certainly a conservative country? And then the, the, the caution intensifies with the theory, which I know people like Morgan McSweeney, the hugely influential on Starmer, director of campaigns, which is that Labour, if it's a tax and spend election, Labour loses. And therefore, to win, you have to neuter it by not proposing any significant spending. Uh, and then you get in and you try and find ways of spending. And I know uh, one of Alistair Darling's last conversations with Rachel Reeves was Alistair said to uh, Rachel Reeves, in government, you can find the money, but you can't make the argument beforehand. But can you find the money that easily? And in terms of tax and spend elections, I think it is more complicated than that. I mean, 1992 is the one always cited. And by the way, Labour never held leads that they've got at the moment in the build-up to 1992. And in some polls in the build-up to 1992, the Tories were ahead. Um, what happened in 1992, the fundamental thing that happened was that Major replaced Thatcher in November 1990. People thought it had been an election and a change of government. The mood was so different. And the Tories then scrapped the poll tax, which was their most unpopular tax. And then Labour went uh, into the 1992 election. It, it's quite interesting. It's all been sort of mythologised subsequently. Um, the Tories were always going to do a tax and spend campaign on Labour in 1992. Neil Kinnock had been leader for nine years. People were fed up with him. And I've spoken to him about it. He, I think he agrees that nine years is just too long. Being in opposition, changing your party, taking on your party, the newspapers saying you've got to take on your party, and then they say when an election looms, well, he's taken on his party, uh, but he's not ready for government. And uh, these were the kind of factors that led to defeat in 1992. The alternative budget announced by Smith didn't help, but I wonder whether that was the decisive factor in Labour losing in 1992. And on the rare occasion when Labour wins, the evidence is mixed. The manifesto in 1964 was pretty radical. Uh, and again in 1966, the same again in 74, though they only just won in the two elections in 74. So, and for sure when they've lost, was it always tax and spend? Not really in 79, actually. When Thatcher won, as I say, on this sort of a bigger argument about the role of the state. So I think it is, these are the reasons for the caution and the reasons the Tories are more confident, partly about background, not in Thatcher's case, but the sort of Etonian swagger, Mark, the kind of Cameron leadership was a factor. The fact that they usually won, although that was on the back of three election defeats, the 2010 manifesto. The fact that newspapers were on their side, although there was equivocation over Cameron. Those are the kind of reasons why the Tories have more confidence. But, 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 I think some of the reasons for Labour's lack of confidence 
are based on misreadings of the past and why the party has been such a failure in terms of winning elections. Anyway, those are some thoughts from me. I think it is a depressing question because it was very interesting. The 2010 thing, I was, you know, Mark Littlewood, who um, is leading this hilarious popular conservatism, you know, with Liz Truss and others. I heard him being interviewed the other day. He made one interesting observation. Uh, his complaint, of course, is that the Tories are too centrist and not Tory enough. He, but he made the exception that by far the most right-wing element of the sequence since 2010 was the coalition. And he's right. They went in at the speed of sound and implemented a whole range of very uh, distinctly right-wing reforms. And you see the Labour government now with their sort of incremental propositions and the mountains that they're going to have to climb. And note the mismatch. I mean, I, I speak to people confident that in power this will be a radical government and journalistic friends of mine I've written that Andrew Marr wrote last week that uh, Keir could be Clem Attlee and he's got the capacity to be. The, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and, and the experience of running a public office is a huge asset. But at the moment, all we can note is the mismatch reinforced by the U-turn uh, of ambitious ends but tiny, puny, incremental means to bring them about. It's a big gap. And with the Tories, uh, what you notice is sometimes kind of playing down the ends, but utterly self-confident, radical means based upon clearly expressed ideological values and an accessible language to make sense of what they're doing. Now, some of you have emailed about all of this, and we're going to come on to a, a, a summary of that discussion in a moment. But uh, before we do, I'm very grateful to white van man driver Andy Davis, who alerted me to one of the best things in the FT, um, the Financial Times. And he says it's worth it just to follow, and I agree with him on this, John Byrne Murdoch, he monitors data and make sense of data in ways that are fantastically rich. And in an era where what is happening in front of us is not often what we choose to see is happening, his focus on data is really interesting. And white van man Andy pointed to one of his pieces recently, which looked at the data on the voting patterns of younger people. And you see, you've heard the cliche, oh, you know, young people don't vote for right-wing parties. But he looks at the data and finds that in many countries, the equivalent to the Conservative Party here has quite a lot of support from young people. But the Conservative Party here, the, the support is absolutely rock bottom. And it's not a pattern applied across uh, uh, other equivalent countries. As Andy concludes, basically, if we can get this current bunch of bastards out, they may never get back in. Well, I wouldn't say that, Andy. There are enough forces, I'm afraid, in the United Kingdom to um, propel them back. But it is interesting the degree to which young people, there is no connection between the uh, 
current values of the Conservative Party, which are in themselves uh, subject to fuming, contentious internal debate, relate to them. And that's why I think, again, to go back to this labour and confidence issue, Rachel Reeves is interesting at times. She talks about the need for an active state. And I think she should go into more detail about what she means by that, because young people look for connections with government. They, they, they you know, they, they don't want to navigate the jungle of um, housing without any assistance or transport or uh, the NHS. You know, the, the, this issue of feeling insecure. Neil Kinnock's very interested in, in this. You know, he, he he says that when he, he looks back when he was young, and even though he was from a relatively poor background, a mining family in Wales, he felt secure. He knew about getting into university. He knew if he fell ill, what he could do to sort it out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, he says the level of insecurity now is greater than in his lifetime. And Neil now is in his 80s. And making those connections, uh, you see, that, that's what young people need to feel. And the green thing, by the way, is, is part of that as well. And so this small state kind of law-breaking, low-tax Tory party, where, where will the connections be made as, as we sit here now? with these younger people. Very interestingly, uh, uh, Sean Farrell also alerted me to Simon Wren Lewis uh, on fiscal rules. And Sean makes the point, uh, he makes the link to the piece. And Jim O'Neill, he says, the former Goldman Sachs chief economist, made the same point about fiscal rules that prevent public investment can be counterproductive. He also makes the political point that a Labour government will be seen as a failure if it doesn't change fiscal rules. So, yeah, again, following the data, and indeed, Jim O'Neill, Sean suggests, I interviewed Jim O'Neill and Simon. Yeah, good idea, Sean. These people are freer to speak than Rachel Reeves. It's a tough, tough job being shadow chancellor when the media and the markets are ready to leap at any moment. But the framing of the fiscal rules is going to be very, very important. We haven't had the detail quite yet of the fiscal rules. But one of the questions we need to ask is, will they give this government any freedom at all to invest in uh, public services? And well, you know, they're still committed to some investment in this green recovery program. But what a, what a decline in numbers. But anyway, there we go. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
Now, on this debate, uh, the green recovery debate, so I got many emails. Uh, I'm just going to kind of, uh, re- re- most of you opposed uh, the U-turn, but but not all. So here's a kind of thing. Uh, here's uh, David. He says, <laughs> don't use my surname. I might be expelled from the Labour Party. He's obviously a Labour member. He is a Labour member. There's no doubt that Labour is heading for a general election victory, but there are very worrying undercurrents in the Starmer leadership. And yeah, he mentions the familiar themes of Gaza and the U-turn on the uh, green issue and detects little enthusiasm for Labour. And there will be longer term consequences for a Labour government if they pursue similar lines. Venetia Kane, who is not uh, Labour at all, she says she's livid about it. Could he, Keir Starmer not find the political means of toughing it out against the Tories instead of caving in? Alex Bell, who is in Switzerland, who gives us a perspective from Switzerland in the cooperative every now and again. Why is Labour so keen to get elected if they don't want to do anything different? Keir Starmer's Labour is beginning to look less like people holding a Ms. Ming vase and increasingly like some people holding a cracked crop that they pick up at a jumble sale. He would prefer Andy Burnham to be in charge. Anthony Wilson makes the same point about the Ming vase. What's the point of carrying priceless pottery with such caution if on reaching the other side of the room, i.e. winning the bloody election, it turns out the vase wasn't Ming after all, but just another fake? Yeah, uh, lots like it. But on the other side. I think we had, yeah, Laundry Joe. Am I the only one? So-called, because he does his laundry while listening to the podcast. I'll mention your surname sometimes, Laundry Joe, but I want to just get to your point. Am I the only one who thinks the right people are complaining from a political point of view regarding the jettisoning of the 28 billion? So far, Greenpeace, Momentum and the Greens are complaining. Given that anyone who's deeply committed to environmental and climate change concerns is unlikely to vote for Sunak, they have few places to go rather than Labour. Whilst the people that Starmer needs to convince in marginal seats who have voted Tory before are likely to be relieved that he's not committed himself to a large specific spending commitment. So there we are, an expedient view in that respect, in terms of analysing the kind of electoral implications. I could read out loads more on on this one, but I hope that gives you a flavour. And I'm sorry I haven't read out more, but we have focused a heck of a lot on it uh, in uh, this week and last week. So, uh, yeah, on other issues, uh, Kate Clark, who raised the issue of Gaza uh, live at a show in uh, King's Place and since uh, on our never-ending debate on the podcast and continues to view with horror some of the things going on in Gaza and wonders, is there anything that might break through, do you think, and cause a shift in policy or a sense of urgency in the British body politic. I've been reminded of one of the key lessons learned from the West's misadventure in Afghanistan, that prioritising support to the US and keeping in with Washington over independent thought, human rights principles, etc., can lead to disastrous outcomes. And uh, she points to analysis in, in Norway, amongst other countries, where they are beginning to take a more independent position. And I do think it is interesting that given the dominance during the uh, debate about Brexit, about the importance of British sovereignty and all the rest of it, 
that yet when it comes to anything to do with international affairs, the kind of UK tends to follow the US. And that's clearly what's happening at the moment. And David Cameron actually is saying bolder things in relation to Israel-Gaza than Keir Starmer at the moment. But yeah, well, thank you, uh, Kate. And and do keep us engaged and informed with this issue. I will return to it as a, a, a major theme of the podcast. But uh, so we have been kind of diverted by the whole tax spend green issue recently. Uh, Rob Roy from Charente in France says, uh, before I get to my point, I just want to say that as I keep bees here in the French countryside, I would like to volunteer as the cooperative sunflower honey supplier. Wow, now you're talking. Bit of honey to liven up our days as we try and delve deep and make sense of the rather bleak political world. You're on. Thank you for that, Rob. To turn to politics, the increase in consistent Tory attack lines is clear. Starmer flip-flopping and not able to make up his mind. Starmer being a lefty lawyer, etc. He says that this is so loud at the moment, he wonders whether there will be a May election because such arguments will lose traction over time, maybe even by the autumn. I suspect not. Rob, I think we're going going to get an autumn election, but who knows? If it's May, we're going to know very, very soon. You'll have to announce it next month. Owen Jarvis also commented on the Labour U-turn, but I I wanted to to mention something else because he's based in Paris at the moment. He says, I'm listening from Paris, where the mayor's office just held a citizen's vote on raising charges for SUVs parking in the city. That's a good level of referendum, no? Small, short, specific topics where citizens feel involved without risking the entire future of the country. That's interesting. See, referendums in the UK have been a disaster. I don't just mean the outcome, but the nature of the campaigns and the level of ignorance when people went to vote. But this one, I've read a bit about this, this referendum on SUVs parking. Is a wholly graspable kind of decision to be made, an informed debate, and then a vote. And I think if you're going to have referendums, yeah, that's it's very interesting. So thank you for alerting us to that. Okay, on now to Paul Cruz. Uh, the collective obviously has form for identifying young talent like Lee Rowley, our man to watch, Lee Rowley. Uh, for new listeners. So I was just wondering what you made of the Tory candidate for my hometown of Epson, Mari Fraser, who has drawn some attention for some old photos showing her wearing a MAGA hat and who also appeared as a speaker at Truss's Popcom Forum. Uh, Well, I don't think, Paul, she is uh, in Lee Rowley's uh, league. Lee Rowley, by the way, is going to be the next Tory leader. No, he's not. It's just a kind of thing that we've got going with Lee Rowley. Thank you very much. Anyway, Tom Hickmore. Oh, I love the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. I usually listen while doing a host of unedifying things. So let us not linger there. God, Tom, I think we should linger there. No, no, we're going to move on. Uh, I hope all this stuff about the 28 billion, oh, we're back on that briefly. Uh, it boggles me that Labour are just following the neoclassical model, uh, economic model. And oh, yeah, uh, Tom recommends an economist for me to get on. Uh, and I, maybe I will. Maybe I will. Who, uh, yeah, apparently is the world expert on the creation of money. 
See, money is a kind of, we could have a whole podcast on the nature of money and raise it up to borrowing and taxing and spending by governments, which is different from, Margaret Thatcher, please note, a shop in Grantham. Colin Hammond, my friend and neighbour Frank and I have been regular attenders of your live show for many years. I was believe I was there at your first show. Oh, wow. The first show in King's Place or Edinburgh or where, uh, Colin. Anyway, I hope you're coming on March the 26th where I'm live in King's Place. I'm also live at the legendary Rope Tackle uh, Art Centre in Shoreham in March. I think on March the 13th, I think. And tickets available at the websites of both those theatres. Uh, Colin says, could we have Alan Bates as Prime Minister and Esther Gay as Home Secretary, please? At the very least, they are the sort of people who should be invited into the House of Lords. They have both in their different ways, uh, Colin, brilliantly put their cases. But being elected ministers accountable to this wild media in Britain and trying to win elections is a different kind of... Uh, demand, but uh, they have been, in their very different contexts, amazing about putting a case and holding people to account. Okay, Matthew Ryder has written in. He always has interesting ideas about what we could follow in the uh, podcast. I've been rereading some of the chapters in your book on prime ministers we never had. This led me to think about politicians who, whilst they didn't get within touching distance of number 10, were seen as having a brilliant future but failed to fulfil their promise due to fatal personal flaws. And he suggests looking at people like Sir Keith Joseph. I mentioned him earlier, coincidentally. George Brown. George Brown was a great politician when sober. Uh, he, he he formed George Brown, Wilson's attempt in 1964 to counter the might of the Treasury. Uh, he led a Department of Economic Affairs. It was a flop, uh, but an interesting idea. And uh, Matthew goes back to Oswald Mosley, who many saw as a future Labour leader in the late 20s and early 30s. So Mosley was a Keynesian uh, in the late 20s when another Labour government followed a very tight economic orthodoxy to its own doom. Oh, Matthew hopes to be at King's Place show in March. See you there, Matthew. Some good ideas, actually. The bonus podcast, or maybe on this podcast, looking at these people who generated ideas that became central to a party's project uh, later on. Certainly that's the case with Keith Joseph. Now, some of you are still writing about slogans. Dom Norton saying, uh, love the podcast. Oh, thank you, Dom. I am emailing because I had the thought of asking a chat GBT for a slogan for Labour for the next election. And it came up with building a fair future together. Not the most groundbreaking idea, but it does have that together word that you like, and which I think is very good too. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's it. So that you put this through a computer and it came up with that. Well, that's pretty close to some of the ones that you've all been coming up with, which are brilliant. For the Conservatives, it suggested stronger together, securing a brighter future for Britain. Interesting to see the differences. The Tories getting stronger and securing instead of building, as well as brighter future instead of fair future. Oh, well, thank you. That's uh, we, we, These uh, slogan ideas are just... Uh, 
amazing. And uh, as I've, I've told them, uh, so, some who listen to this from the uh, Shadow Cabinet and Keir Starmer's office, I've said, you know, dump your advertising agency. This is, some of these slogans are great. And I think it's better than their one about, uh, it's got back in their one. Uh, I can't remember, get your future back or something. Doesn't quite work, I don't think. But anyway, there we are. Thanks for your email. Sorry if I haven't read uh, them all out, uh, but uh, th this is a feverish political period, and I think we're going to get lots of emails. Keep them coming. So I, I will do a question time special to pick up some of those uh, more timeless ones that can be uh, explored uh, in a separate podcast. But if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to stop now because well, we've all got other things to do apart from delving deep in our time together. So, yeah, what times? Um, we're going to have to do some foreign affairs specials as well. You know, the, what's going on in the United States is extraordinary. I found the interview with Putin conducted by, oh, God, I've forgotten his name, you know, this sort of Trumpite media interviewer. Fascinating. Uh, I watched the whole two hours, um, and it's worth looking at, actually. What's he called? Tucker, somebody or other. Anyway, yeah, uh, there's a lot going on, as ever. Uh, so let's keep on delving deep, uh, but enjoy all the other things that we all get up to. Uh, and, you know, the odd glass of whiskey or glass of wine is allowed as we delve deep into uh, the worlds we're navigating. All right, thanks very much. Take care. See you soon. Bye.